you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Dick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another session of the Gallo Cast. Who's on the Gallo Cast? Well, of course, it's the Gallo Brothers, Nick Gallo and Geo Gallo. Gents, welcome back. Best part of my month is this is coming on this and chatting with you. Tom, well, so um, hopefully our audience feels the same way. So, uh, as usual, we had a heck of a month in terms of compliance, ethics, and culture. So, how about Silicon Valley Bank? Mm-hmm. What's that? What was that? <laughs> what was that? It's a, it's a small <laughs> regional bank somewhere. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure where to start. It uh, first of all, the quickest, greatest failure ever. Two hundred billion dollars in assets wiped out in uh, 24 hours. Um, then uh, media come in, step in by the Fed uh, for a backstop and for insured depositors up to 250. And then they turned out they're going to insure all depositors um, as well. The um, then it turns out that maybe a few other things were going on as we found out this week. Uh, there were several senior executives who sold shares of stock mm-hmm. at the $200 figure. Mm-hmm. Short, shortly before the bank's collapse, like um, like within hours, like it was maybe not even several days. And my personal favorite is uh, another group of senior executives borrowed over two hundred million dollars from the bank uh, the same week of its collapse. So maybe this is just old-fashioned accounting fraud, or at least insider trading. But the Gallo cast looks at it from all angles. So which one of you guys wants to start? Uh, I'll start. So, so many interesting things to talk about with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, you know, I think, I mean, the way I look at, at all of this is this is probably the tip of the iceberg. This is not like an isolated event. Whenever uh, Powell, Jerome Powell starts pulling his nose like he's been blowing cocaine, uh, that's his tell for when he's lying. That it, That's his tell for when he doesn't believe what he's actually saying. Um, so there's... Two years ago, um, let's talk about what maybe kicked this off. So two years ago, um, the reserves, uh, the reserve rate was basically eliminated. So fraction, you know, our, our banking system is built on fraction re- reserve lending. That was uh, meaning that you have to, a bank needs to retain a portion of the deposits that they are given uh, relative to what they're able to lend out or invest. So banks historically have made sort of a spread between what rate I pay you as a depositor and what rate I'm able to uh, get from a, um, on a loan, um, you know, and I can sort of make that spread. So during COVID, there was a massive uh, drop in the demand for loans. So how are banks going to make money? Well, they're going to buy other things. Uh, they're essentially going to make loans by buying uh, bonds. And so um, 
they bought a bunch of bonds with, there was a ton of deposits that poured in um, from a um, from a depositor group that was, uh, which I'll get to in a second, uh, a, bunch, a bunch of those deposits poured in. Those were then invested uh, in, you know, bonds that, you know, in a yield chasing scenario, because yields were so low, right? Interest rates have been wildly low for a really long time. Uh, a bunch of those bonds were purchased. And then the Fed, due to all the uh, inflation fears, the Fed starts raising the rates at a you know, remarkable rate over the last, you know, two years or so as, uh, as rates go up, prices of bonds go down. Right. So I bought all these bonds, uh, rates are going up. The value of those bonds in the short term are dropping. If I hold those to maturity, fine. Uh, I won't be insolvent, but when people start demanding, uh, their deposits back, they want, I want my money out of the bank. I then have to get them that money. Well, the only thing, the, the only, the only way I can get that money is to sell the assets that those, that, that money is tied up in, which are now at drastically reduced prices because interest rates have sort of skyrocketed as the as the Fed has tried to like you know slow down the economy. So if you think Silicon Valley Bank is the only one who's like done this, absolutely that hasn't. That's not true, right? Everyone was doing the same yield chasing, which is what drove up the stock market, which would drove up uh, everyone to make those sort of compromises uh, in terms of like from a risk standpoint or from a duration uh, balancing perspective uh, to to buy these other things. So. Um, I think if they can contain it, then great. Um, but one interesting thing that all the other banks maybe don't have to the same degree is the uh, consistency or the uh, composition of the depositor base at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, it was a bunch of different companies, but they were all these kind of like risk on, as I would call them, companies, kind of crypto startup kind of companies that um, you know are largely affected by the sort of changing sentiment uh, sentiment around like how cool it is to be unprofitable. <laughs> so like um, they, they all kind of move together. So when you hear all these tech companies that are startups that are burning cash uh, that wanted to go public, well, since the market started to crater, uh, they haven't been able to go public. And now you're seeing all these layoffs because now they have to get back to profitability. Uh, that novel thing, uh, investing called pro profitability. Um, the point is the composition of like that, uh, that depositor group, at Silicon Valley Bank was not that diverse. And that is a massive, massive factor in, in the way that that whole thing played out. And just like all those VC guys, they're all buddies. They all have, they all buy their Patagonia jackets at the same place. And so like they all, you know, they're all in the same area. And so that kind of kicked off this really interesting, uh, you know, turn of events that left them, you know, SOL. You know, Nick, usually it's your older brother who's a little passionate about these things. Uh, that's as passionate as I've heard you about a business issue. So, Gio, uh, is your little brother just uh, running amok or is he on to something here? So, uh, Nick is welcome to run amok. And, you know, I've always said that if you get a CPA talking about uh, risk and reward, you're going to get you're going to get a lot of passion. Um, so, you know, Nick's the older brother. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of riding his coattails around and, uh, you know, I like, that was a great overview. You know, I think a lot of people have heard about this thing and you're just like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Oh, there's a bank run. And, um, you know, it's, it, it can be hard to like get the signal from the noise when there's just like headlines all around. That's basically what was going on. I think from a, uh, you know, from like a risk management standpoint, it's really interesting because like, I think this is part of why we, you know, Nick and I and our company Ethico, and I think a lot of people in the ethics space talk about culture so much 
because this is really a cultural phenomenon. Um, you know, I think we'll see if, like you were saying, Tom, if this is just like old fashioned accounting fraud and people were just like brazenly violating clear rules. We'll see if that comes out. What, you know, what I can say before we get to that determination is there was like, there was a whole culture here at the leadership at, you know, the people writing loans and the underwriters. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's the compliance and ethics team, but like at Silicon Valley bank, and then also it pervaded into all their customers, all their uh, depositors. That was just this let's swing for the fences type of thing, yep. which is kind of fine if you're just like, you know, a rich bon vivant and you like throw in $30 million to see if this company can make a bike fly. Like that's kind of fine if you want to kind of dump your money into that. If you're a financial institution that like has contagion risk to the rest of our banking system and you're playing this – this game where you're just lending to all these risky companies, maybe that's fine, right? You can kind of figure that out maybe, but then you're lending to these risky companies with like the least amount of like risk protection, right? That's what having reserves is. Um, and then also you have this like compounding effect of like all there's uh, like, there's all of this overlap among your depositors where one guy says, hey, I think this bank is probably like not that safe. Hey, a couple of you guys should go get your money out. That whisper just goes to the whole industry and everyone's like, okay, I'm gonna go move it to JPM or B of A or Wells or whatever it is. Um, just all of that, it just, it just seems like such a miss from a risk management standpoint. It's like, if you're gonna be lending debt to super risky, unprofitable companies, you should probably be more safe, not be like the riskiest bank around. And also, if you're a regulator, if you're the SEC, like the game is not just to avoid people like mispricing mortgage-backed securities because that already happened in 2008, and we're right. probably not going to do that again. This is like my buddy who, you know, was texting while he was driving, smashed into a uh, stop sign, and then three miles down the road, he smashed into a telephone pole. And I was like, "Guy, what were you doing?" He's like, "Well, I didn't smash into that stop sign again. And also, I didn't even smash into a stop sign. This is a completely new thing." it's not really a new thing. It's just like risk of contagion. And it just seems like, here's, here's a big question. Maybe we can put this to the audience of two. Um, do you think that this was like people asleep at the wheel? Or do you think that the system of incentives clearly incentivized these people to play this game like this? Like, do you think that they were so caught off guard by it? Or do you think they were like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna put a big stack. You know, I'm gonna play roulette and put it all on red. And I know that's a super risky bet, but you know what? I'm willing to do it, and it's and it's probably going to work out fine for a while. What do you think, Nick? You think that this is an incentive mismatch, or you think they just like poor guys? They just didn't really know the right way to do it. I think it's uh, I think it's an incentives mismatch. I think it's a. I mean, I guess at some level it it, it can be both, but like, sure. what are they supposed to do? Everyone's doing it. Everyone is like, what signal did did the did the um did the change to the reserves send? What signal, uh, what incentive does uh, zero interest rate policy send? You know what I'm saying? Also, why is the Fed acting like they're so shocked by this? What do they think is going to happen when rates rise that quickly? Right. They're just crossing their fingers, hoping that like there's not a bank run. I mean, I mean, it's clearly a solvency issue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they just they're just assuming that every bank has 
played the duration of the bonds that they're buying in a way that anticipates the uh, changing slope of the yield curve. It's crazy. Right. I mean, the yield what curve think, right, right, right now is so wildly inverted. It's like, I think this is maybe the most inverted that it's ever been. Uh, and you know, they say the Fed raises rates until something breaks. So maybe this is the thing that broke. <laughs> yeah. That was what my first internship project was on uh, when I worked in banking. I used to work for this bank, uh, like it's been gone for a while, but it was called Credit Suisse. I worked at that bank one summer and my uh, my first intern project was on inverted yield curve. Oh, really? Yep. So one of the things that struck me was the speed of the bank run. Hmm. Um, I was a Washington Mutual customer many, many years ago, which had the largest bank run ever, and it took nearly... 10 days to empty out Washington Mutual. Uh, here we had it in literally 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was social media. I don't know. It was because they were all interrelated uh, brothers in the Silicon Valley uh, world or perhaps something else. And I first thought, you know, th this really is new and different. But then the scene popped in my head. I could not get it out of the bank run in the original Mary Poppins. And when they said to the children, no, you can't have your money. And then somebody whispered, they can't get their money. And then all of a sudden, everyone in the bank heard they can't get their money. And then everyone outside and they had a bank run. Right. And so I'm not sure it's really any different than Mary Poppins in 1908, but the speed of the collapse was, was truly stunning. Yeah. And, that's sort of question one for you guys to consider. Two was, I, I was shocked to find that eight months prior to the bank run, the company's chief risk officer resigned and she was never replaced. So they're operating without a chief risk officer. And maybe, you know, as uh, the Mexican bandit said, we don't need no stinking horses and we don't need no stinking risk officer. Uh, <laughs> no badges. We don't even need badges. <laughs> don't even need that. But uh, this Matt Kelly talks about the amplification that social media has brought to different voices, but it also brings a, a speed component. Yeah. And it really drove home to me. And I used to think I could keep a handle on things, but now it's just my head absolutely spins when I think about $200 billion evaporating 24 hours and the Fed having to meet for 48 hours to backstop the economy. It's, it's wild. Yeah, I reality. Think it's wild. It's wild. I think, I, I think, not only is it the reality that it's faster, but it's also predictable. You should be able, I, you know, call me Monday morning quarterback. All right, you know, call up, call up the Manning brothers and tell them I'm playing Monday morning quarterback. But also, like, the world is like it's not 1908 now. Also, 1908 was probably a fast bank run because people were in a city, and if you were in, you know. Uh, you know, some outpost of a bank and everyone everyone lived two hours away, it would take weeks for people to hear that you can't get your money out. So it just, it's always going to accelerate, but also you got to manage the risk around that. And, you know, I think that, you know, a piece of this, you know, at least one angle on the speed is that like the flow of information and the flow of money are both faster. So maybe those compound, right? Like, it, you don't have to wait for someone to send an email to a bunch of people or get on a couple calls and talk to people. They tweet about it and millions of people see it. So the information flows faster. And also it's a lot faster to just like transfer that money uh, and pull it out. And, you know, there's, there's a, uh, a lot of like uh, interconnectedness that people, you know, people could pull that money quickly. They didn't have to walk down to the bank and ask for it at the teller booth. 
but also that's like that's the world that we live in it's not like it's 2003 and like we're just figuring out what modems are like we we live here right i am still trying to figure out what a modem is though let's turn to another banking uh issue and that was a woman named carrie tolstat who pled guilty uh carrie tolstat was the head of wells fargo community banking and uh generally um credited with developing the eight is great false accounting scandal at Wells Fargo. And I introduced that because I had dinner or lunch yesterday with a former banker from Wells Fargo. And we were of course talking about some of their woes. And he said to me the following, that account account fake accounting scandal was the stupidest thing he ever heard of when he heard about it, because what was Wells going to get out of it? A percentage point rise in stock price. He said, that's just stupid to incur potential risk for nothing. And yeah, we had, but we had a good stock. We, we were solid. We had weathered 08. We didn't need to cheat. And we were just cheating for gravy. It wasn't like we were cheating to save our company. And so I found that really interesting. What did you guys think of uh, all of that? So I think, um, you know, it's, that's an, that's an interesting perspective on it. And it might just kind of speak to, how like a whisper from the top can be like a yell down below. Um, you know, I'm sure that that CEO or that, um, that executive teams, you know, uh, stock options definitely played into that drive. Um, and yeah, so, um, and just like the cascading effect or like how that sort of, you know, that desire can be amplified across the organization. And if that becomes the rallying cry and that's what people are solving for, everybody's not, not doing a, you know, uh, a capital asset pricing model on like what me selling this one extra, you know, account is going to translate into the stock price. They're, they're, they, they know that they are, you know, again, back, back to incentives. They know that their bonus is tied to how many accounts they open. And that, you know, trickles up to this broader, uh, you know, objective of key and key result of the CEO's, you know, stock options sort of vesting or, or whatever was in play in that at that time. But to your point, like in retrospect, that's nuts. That's nuts that they took on that much risk for something that really wasn't a needle mover in any any way you you want to cut it from a company wide standpoint, you know. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is so, I think you know it's probably a valid point. I'd probably agree with it that it's not a good risk reward trade off to do something like this, right? The damage has been far greater than whatever gain they did actually get or could have got if they like quote got away with it. But I think that there's a different. Um, dynamic at play here than someone making a poor risk reward reward trade-off. And it really gets to an issue of leadership. And it's kind of tied to what Nick was saying. But like, I don't imagine that someone ran a model and said, hey, why don't we push people to do this? And we'll open a bunch of fake bank, bank accounts. And it's going to help our stock about 1%. And we might have a risk of you know the, this type of penalties and ruining our name. Someone didn't do that. It actually happened in a way where Someone was pushing for something. And I think the foolish thing was the leadership and like Wells has had like a lot of leadership turnover. So uh, let's just kind of call it the Royal L leadership. Um, but leadership allowing the company and the culture to exist in a way where not just one person, but thousands of people would be okay with this is really the foolish thing. Yeah. Allowing yourself to send out a message and not 
not like say, hey, just so you know, I was talking about this and not this, not like making sure you're rooting it out, not making sure that people understand that when when we say let's hit our growth goals, we're not saying at all costs, no matter what you need to do. There's that type of stuff that like if you're an executive, certainly if you're like a sales leader, you need to understand that like there is this moral hazard at play where individuals, right? This is just like Silicon Valley Bank. Individuals can make a bet within their own sphere of influence that not only makes sense for them, even though it's bad for everybody else, but also without even understanding the broader game. And it's your job if you manage five or you have 50,000 people in your downline, it's your job to make sure that that kind of stuff is going well, because that's, I think, the real thing that gets messed up is not that someone said, Hey guys, here's a new strategy. I think it's worth the trade-off. We might ruin our reputation, but let's do it. It does, you know, it is, it's a, it's a death by a thousand cuts or whatever, but allowing your company to elevate this thing in their mind of, you know, getting some more growth in accounts or whatever it is above whatever, you know, our mission or our values or our integrity or our reputation or whatever it is, letting them conf you know, confuse which is more important, I think is the real tragedy there because there's always going to be this stuff. You know, I asked the question about like incentives with Silicon Valley Bank. Listen, those, those like the executives there, they have a bunch of money, okay? They made millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. And I haven't asked them, but I imagine they're like, they don't like how it ended, but they like how it was going for a while and they have the money and they took the risk. And now that risk is, you know, the feds bailing people out and we all have to deal with the banking, you know, the threat to banking and stuff like that. There are always going to be these, these micro spots of moral hazard where someone either unwittingly or yeah. willingly is going to put unnecessary risk on your organization and on your culture. And it's our job as leaders to not just be, getting people excited and getting them engaged. It's not just to build a big picture and paint a big vision. It's to make sure that our team can get through the storm, can climb the mountain, and can preserve the things that are most important to us. Now, if what's most important is just making short-term profits and let's see what we can get done in this quarter, and then we'll, you know, who cares what happens next quarter? Well, then you got to know that this kind of stuff is probably going to happen. This first quarter of 2023 has had as many announcements from the Department of Justice, as I can remember, in one quarter. It started in January with the changes to the corporate enforcement policy, giving more credit for uh, earlier self-disclosure and more extraordinary cooperation. That's more than regular extraordinary cooperation. Uh, and number two, uh, or, or rather next, we had two speeches by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco and Kenneth Polite announcing changes in the corporate or Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, ECCP. Uh, the ECCP focuses on compliance programs, as its title suggests. And there we had some specificity around clawbacks, which we've talked about. We had uh, a new section on, um, uh, and within clawbacks, it was called consequence management. A new requirement that compliance professionals perform an in-depth analysis of salary and promotion uh, around compliance incentives, which was new. Uh, information around uh, who was evaluating corporate investigators for pay or other remuneration, as well as information on uh, ephemeral messaging, WhatsApp and the like. Um, 
you guys, uh, I wanted to uh, maybe ask, start with you, Gio. You talk as passionately about incentives as anyone I know. But I'd like to ask you about non-financial incentives, promotions, and tying people's conduct to whether or not they are an ethical fit for moving up, for instance, into senior management. And how do you see the department evaluating that? Is it an appropriate evaluation or should we do, be doing something else? I actually like this one, Tom. I, I think I've railed against this a bunch of times, so I'm just going to take a different stance. But I think there's something about the non-financial piece that feels maybe, you know, it's not just that it's more subjective. It just feels like it's more tied to this thing that like, it kind of feels like if I pay you for doing the right thing, that's very transactional and you can take that money and go somewhere else. If I give you a promotion or put you into a uh, place of leadership because you embody a bunch of these things that we're not going to just write down in an 85 point bullet point policy, but you embody the integrity and the values of our organization. And we're going to, we're going to help you be more of an influence on more people. I like that trade-off. I feel like that might balance things more over time than just the, the one-off pay and clawback and stuff like that. Um, I think there's something about the spirit of it that like it, it feels to kind of match um, the like relative lack of objectivity, right? It's kind of hard to say, hey, uh, that vendor that you didn't hire last quarter, that's worth $23,000 to us, so here's a bonus. Or that thing that you did bad, we're going to take 12 grand back from you. I feel like it's hard to like nail that down. I feel like saying, hey, you're the type of person that we believe in and that is living these things out, and we're going to elevate you to, you know, like this doesn't have to just be formal authority, right? This can be, we recognize you or we're gonna have you be part of this committee or whatever it is. I think those types of things have a much better chance. Maybe this is part of why I like it. They have a much better chance to kind of like multiply and compound over time because as you do that, that person who is more of the right type of person is gonna have more influence in the organization, not just be a richer or poorer person because of the compliance incentives. Nick? Yeah, I, you know, um, you know, I always look at this kind of from a, a persuasion lens. And if you're getting in trouble, you're, there's going to be a lot of persuasion that needs to go, uh, and that's going to need to be sort of enacted uh, to persuade somebody that you're kind of taking the right steps forward. If you're building a culture, you have to persuade all the people in the organization that uh, the value, that what you say actually matters. And so if you can incorporate these things, um, you know, into those promotions uh, and make that a pillar of what, you know, what is, um, what's considered for promotion and people believe it, well, then that's going to have that sort of self-reinforcing, uh, benefit that we're trying to get at. If it's just, you know, lip service, or if it's just, you know, window dressing or whatever, then we're probably going to be in the same place that we're at now, because to some degree, no one's like, everybody already kind of pushes up against, uh, the notion that, you know, uh, people get different roles, you know, I mean, everybody wants to be a high integrity company. Everybody, you know, says that, uh, in their job ads and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, obviously there's all these exceptions and we wouldn't be talking about this if there weren't. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if, if, if it's a means by which a company can put their money where their mouth is around values around, um, you know, compliance, you know, things like that, like building the, the culture that they're, uh, claiming to have, then there can be kind of some good knock-on effects. But at the, I think the proof is going to be kind of in the pudding and how it's actually viewed. So 
we had a question come in from a listener. Uh, we love questions. So it came in after, uh, during our prior discussion, uh, Geo, that you were talking about around uh, non-financial incentives, but it turns a little bit more towards the financial and it reads, you think that in turn makes a good argument for compliance leadership objectives and measures as a means of assessing year end performance and compensation benefits uh, or potentially clawbacks? Uh, just to make sure I get the question, they're saying, um, should we have objective measures of whether the compliance person did a good job that year and give them a bonus or a clawback based on how well they do? Both compliance and then other senior executives as uh, now we have to look at from the new 2023 ECCP. So I think broadly, what gets measured gets managed and what gets managed gets done. So if we care about this thing, we being the board or the stockholders or the executive or the regulators, we got to be able to measure it and manage it if we want it to be done. So um, I think I, I think I agree with most of that with a like it depends on the financial piece of it, because I think that like if you don't have measures for like how successful is the compliance team this year at moving our, you know, our culture and our risk stance forward, then you're in trouble. If it's just like, ah, okay, did you get some projects done? Okay, you know, some things are finished and everything's always hard, so then it's fine. That's a problem. And if you don't have some measures for your executive team so that you can say, hey, executive team, we care about this thing. Did you get this stuff done? Then you have a problem. I think there's a follow-on question of like, should your evaluation of that be just like table stakes where they have to do good enough to keep their job? Or should it be kind of part of a basket of things that they get evaluated on that will impact their, you know, raise and bonus and promotion or whatever? Or, you know, I think it, I like, I object more and more to it when you start boxing it off and saying this $217,000 clawback is tied to this specific action. I think that uh, there are a lot of problems with that, but broadly, you should be able to measure this stuff. You should be setting goals up around it, and you should have some tie to evaluation that ties to something that people care about, promotion, compensation, something like that. Uh, I think it absolutely has to be in the mix. Um, I think you just have to be careful you know, how directly you tie one thing to another. Nick, your thoughts? I think it's a great ar argument for it. Um, you know, to, to Gio's point, um, you know, whatever gets managed gets done. Um, and it's, I mean, now that I'm looking at this question, I mean, it, it's almost, uh, it's almost silly that it's, that it hasn't been sort of part of the equation to this, to this point, you know, it's in some level, it's a little bit sad that, uh, this stuff has to come out for us to start kind of, kind of enacting it because it's kind of common sense. Like what, what's the proof of your efficacy? You know what I'm saying? Like it should show up. It should be everywhere. It should be all over the place and it should be. Uh, absolutely, um, uh, a means of assessing the end the end of year performance and compensation. Like there are KPIs that 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 we can attach to all these things, um, and you know, it's up to us. I think to um, make the case. I mean, this is kind of a separate issue, but like, uh, it's up to us. Like we should be, you know, pra practitioners should be like pushing for this because otherwise, like, what are you doing? You're going to avoid it. You're, you're going to avoid some sort of like uh, way to measure your impact or, 
or f- efficacy. I think if you can get out ahead of it, you can help determine how that efficacy is measured. Um, and I don't know, it's just kind of the reality of the situation. Are you moving the needle in one way or, or another? Like you should be able to, you should be able to be held accountable for that. I think. Yeah. And I think that this ties into something that, you know, I think people come to Nick and me a lot and, you know, we end up trying to help people with this issue around getting authority and getting involvement and getting a seat at the, you know, board and executive table for ethics experts and compliance leaders. I think it ties into that authority and also the like, can I get budget for what I need? Uh, like, can I present a, po- a good ROI? I think this thing around like measures of competence and performance and improvement are a great path to get there. Some of it kind of depends on who your executive is and are they, you know, a data gal or are they kind of like just kind of a high level, you know, just kind of tell me a story type person. But, you know, I would say that if you feel that in your organization, compliance isn't getting the budget that it needs, uh, compliance is uh, not getting like the respect and the authority and the, you know, invitation to the conversation that you think it should, um, that, you know, your recommendations aren't heard that much. I think you should, at least one of the questions you should be asking is, have I presented compelling like goals and metrics and plans and promises and saying, hey guys, watch me, I'm about to put this number up on the board. And then have I shown a consistent pace of me performing against that improvement? Um, if, If you're not, that might be one of the reasons why it's kind of, you know, you can say it's nefarious and like these people just don't get it. But it might be that they just they don't have a handle on it. And it just kind of feels like, you know, someone can measure, uh, you know, what's the uptime on the servers or how fast do our pages load or how many people in the sales team hit quota or, you know, what's our ads, you know, what's our return on ad spend or whatever it is. They can measure that in a bunch of the other divisions. If you're not handing that to your manager, to your executive and saying, hey, here's. Uh, you know, right. here are my three OKRs for the year, or here are the five things that we should measure. And I, I should be able to move improvement on a bunch of these fronts and anything that goes down, I should have a good explanation for it. If you don't have that in place, that might be either a reason that thing that's holding you back, or it might also be something that can be your path to getting that engagement and someone's light bulbs turning on and their eyes widening and be like, oh, really? Now I know what you're talking about. Let's go get that. Yeah. They're just, they're means by which you can sort of prove your usefulness to the organization. And so you can nest your own OKRs up underneath your corporate, divisional, you know, ultimate, you know, executive OKRs, but having some way to sort of show that usefulness uh, in a in a in a quantitative way I think is extremely persuasive and extremely powerful if it's done right, you know. Let me change the focus a fair amount uh, with our next topic. And here I want to use the example of Memphis professional basketball player John Morant who uh, was caught or, or was on video uh, in a gentleman's club where alcohol was served with a gun. And uh, even in states like the great state of Texas, which has open carry, you can't take guns into places where alcohol is served for a very good reason. My initial reaction to that was that's an automatic suspension. Uh, that is actions or, or uh, conduct that is completely intolerable. Turns out there may be some other things going on, and uh, it really led me to think about. He's a 23-year-old male, single male, richer than he ever dreamed of, and he may be having some some mental health issues. He's in a very high-stress world, professional basketball, but you guys come out of a high-stress business environment, or at least my perception is. 
it came out of one. Uh, I was a trial lawyer, so I understand that from that perspective as well. And I really wanted to have a, a conversation around compliance, mental health, perhaps resources available, uh, when to ask for help, how to ask for help. Do you guys have those types of discussions with your employees that you know you want to help if somebody's having those issues, whether it's grief, whether it's you know, something like John Moran or something else. How do we start to talk about that in high stress business environments? I think the way we talk about it is by, you know, doing it by, by talking about it. I think we have a philosophy that life is like a lot more like, uh, you know, baseball than it is like brain surgery and gain, you know, a war is won over the long run, uh, not by every single step that's sort of taken. And that coupled with the belief that we both firmly believe or that we both firmly have that people are our greatest asset, it opens up a lot of sort of like budget for, um, to, you know, uh, to have those kinds of conversations and a lot of sort of like margin for folks to take the, to take the help that they need. I find it a little bit ironic uh, and kind of hypocritical and frankly bizarre if you look back at the sort of industrial revolution economy, which is what we're still kind of coming out of in that there's still many of those sort of vestigial structures and like uh, ways of thinking that are, have, you know, continued to persist today. Nobody like threw a fit when you had to shut down a production line to give like maintenance to a machine, right? That's of course, of course, every, every machine needs uh, maintenance. This is our greatest asset. Well, now we're in the industrial or now we're in the knowledge work economy where our great, where we are, our work, where our greatest asset is our people. Um, well, people need sort of uh, maintenance as well. And this high stress thing, which has become a sort of foundational element in this American um, you know, workplace experience, it's almost become like this defining characteristic. If you're not stressed, you're not working hard. Uh, I fall victim to it myself. I mean, based on where I've come from and just kind of the natural tendencies that, that, that I have, um, it takes it makes it important for leaders to like carve out that time and remind people that like we're playing a long run here and there's very few things that you're actually going to mess up uh, by taking a day and so forth. Obviously we're in a for-profit business. Obviously we want to uh, broaden our, our impact and in order to do that and sort of achieve our mission. We have to work hard and we have to win. Uh, but there's also a lot of ways to win that don't involve you just like redlining everything all the time. So I think it's incumbent upon leaders to make that space for those kinds of conversations and also be in tuned enough with their machines, quote unquote, uh, the people in their organization to see what's going on with them. Like somebody could be going through something. They could be going through something personal or uh, something health related that they don't feel safe enough to like bring out in the workplace. Well, that's on you as a leader to like create that space and create that time to have those kinds of conversations. And I think uh, look, I don't know what that guy's life is like. Um, I'm sure it's extremely high pressure and, you know, it all can fall apart at, 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 at any time, but it's at least a picture of the types of stress that I think a lot of us feel. I mean, look, no one's life is easy, right? Like no one gets to the end of life and laying on their deathbed and like that was a breeze. No one says that life is really hard for everybody. So I'm just saying that it's on us as leaders to carve out those spaces in our, um, our, you know, organizations and in our, our workplaces and view these kinds of issues, uh, you know, less as a weakness and more as like, this is natural sort of maintenance uh, 
you know, repairs and maintenance type uh, expense, if you want to get, you know, really kind of te technical about it, uh, that we, we would have in any other, um, you know, economy type. Yeah, it's well said, Nick. You know, um, I don't know what his life is like. Uh, I think it's great, Tom, that you're asking this question. And, you know, I think plenty of people are quick to jump on him and say, oh, well, you know, he should know better or shame on him or he's a bad example or whatever it is. But, you know, um, I, I've always said that I can't understand somebody else until I walk a mile in their Nikes and I can't know what it's like for him to do that. But I think we as leaders should also know that like there are a bunch of people in our organization who are going through things, right? It's just something called life. And if it's not happening to them, it's their family or their friends or, you know, dreams that they have or whatever it is. And we're in this place, you know, uh, we can have a whole other session about who's to blame for this, but we're in this place where people don't have a lot of like social safety net around them. And I'm not talking about Medicaid. I'm talking about like a community that they can go to that like supports them in hard times. I think we've talked um, in uh, prior episodes of the show about how like faith in like pillar institutions in our society, like certainly in uh, the US and North America, like those have fallen for, you know, government and, you know, like involvement in social organizations and faith, you know, belief in religion and all of that stuff. And in a lot of ways, like, you know, uh, the workplace is one of like the last standing places where people think, okay, maybe I'll be treated fair here, or maybe this, at least maybe this one isn't run by a bunch of charlatans. So whether you like it or not, there are people who are coming to work at your organization who are going through trouble. And we could talk about how, hey, you just should do it because it's good for the bottom line. I think there's plenty of conversation to be had around, you know, letting let letting your you know your human resources uh, have you know have time for maintenance and downtime is good for the bottom line and helps engagement and retention and stuff like that. That's fine. We can also just say, hey, there's just an opportunity here to be a blessing to someone else's life. There's an opportunity here to build a good workplace, to be a place where people are psychologically safe, to be a place that helps people uh, kind of get through their tough times. And even if it's not the highest ROI thing, it probably doesn't cost you a bunch um, to like be a place that's safe for people, that like, you know, managers care about people, that there's a little bit of breathing room for someone to take a break in the middle of a hard day, if, you know, if they need to beg off a meeting or whatever it is. Um, and I think that more, you know, I think a lot of the generation that's rising into leadership kind of gets this intrinsically. And I think a lot of the the uh, the people who are in leadership now have heard it enough that I think some of them are waking up, you know, there's like some adoption curve going toward this kind of understanding of the importance of the workplace being a safe place that like serves the whole person. It's kind of how Nick and I, you know, see our job as our calling and the workplace that we're building and what we're trying to do. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of room to try to figure that out. And there's probably more space in your organization to give a little bit more attention to this without really wrecking your next quarter's earnings. Um, all that said, you know, I'm not perfect at this. Our organization is not perfect at this. We talk about the culture that we wanna have and it's an ideal and it's aspirational and we're always trying to make adjustments to do that. Uh, but also, you know, you know, so like we don't talk about it enough. You know, we don't we don't have a bunch of meetings talking about, hey, here's how you should bring it up if you have a mental health issue. But we try to do stuff like we have an EAP. We try to train managers to look out for this stuff. We have employee satisfaction and engagement teams. And you know, I just had someone this week bring something up confidentially to me and saying, 
hey, you know what? I, I'm not mad at this other person. I don't have a problem with the, you know, something broadly, just this thing is hard for me and it's causing trouble for me at work. Um, and it was, you know, kind of a mental health issue. I won't get into more detail about it, but I think an easy step to get there is to just make your culture, whether that's your team of three people or your division or your whole company, whatever you can influence, a place for where people feel comfortable bringing their whole self to work, speaking up and saying, hey, I need some help with something or this isn't going well, and have them feel, like Nick said, that this is going to be dealt with on like a long-term view of like, let's help you get through this and there's something good on the other side for me and you and the organization instead of like, what are you talking about? You need the afternoon off. Well, you got a pay cut and you know, blah, blah, blah that kind of transactional thing I don't think works well. And I think we can all be better at it. So I want to end with a topic that started with a LinkedIn post by Nick. And I think it got as much comment as anything you posted, Nick. Yeah, ever. And that was a daddy-daughter dance. And um, you said so much in, in your blog post and in the comments were so much more. Yeah. And I just want to throw out some things. Uh, first of all, uh, God created no better gift for a male than a daughter. So uh, true. <laughs> it's so great. Um, up until about the age seven, because up until then they think you're God and your job is to let them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then they may change. But yeah. um, the daddy daughter dance is a so important, not just for the daughter, but for the parent. And taking the time to do that with your daughter will pay off in spades, not only for what you get, but she will always remember that. And she'll take that with her literally forever. So Nick, I want to throw it over to you and, and just open it up for both you guys. Cause I know you're both have daughters. So um, tell us about the daddy daughter dance, Nick. It was like, so cute. I mean, we got dressed up and uh, it was just our, our time together, you know, she's my oldest daughter and she's a middle child. So, you know, that middle child position is a tough one because they get overlooked a lot and they feel that, uh, that way, but it was just such a special fun time, uh, together. And during it, I just remember thinking, um, you know, I could see how special it was for her and I could see a lot of what you're talking about. I could see that it, um, that, that we're, we're making like a really meaningful memory. And it just kind of reminded me of, you know, how fleeting that time is going to be. I'm sure I'm going to blink and she's going to be look asking for the car keys and I'm going to blink and I'll be walking her down the aisle and like, it's just going to go so fast and it gets so easy to get caught up in the day to day of the fires that I have to put out and the emails that are pouring in and all these problems uh, that, you know, you deal with and, and in, that everybody deals with, you know, in this thing that we call work, the brambles and thistles as they call it. Um, but, you know, what is it for? It's for, uh, you know, the people that, that we bring into this world and the people that we're here to support. And um, what's the point of it all if, you know, you're not making those sort of foundational memories that end up, you know, building into the type of uh, person that, you know, I want her to be, you know. Um, so it was really great. And it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was just so much, it was so much more fun than I thought it was going to be. And, um, but beyond that, it was so much more like meaningful. Like it was so, it felt so substantial and it was such a simple thing, you know, to get her dressed up and go out for pizza and then go dance and, you know, eat popcorn and, you know, cookies and stuff like that. It was, uh, it's, it's so funny how simple it could be. And yet so like impactful, you know, Gio. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, my, uh, 
my daughter's four, so I haven't been invited to a dance yet. It's kind of story of my life. Uh, but we, uh, uh, her name's Lucci, and we do Lucci Papa dates. And it's just like, you know, I think there's a thing here, regardless of whether you're a parent or regardless of whether you have a daughter. Like, if there's someone special in your life that is, means something to you, carve out some time and do something meaningful for them to connect with them or to let them know how much you care about them. Because I think that's a big part of it. Like I said, my daughter's four. I don't think she's going to remember every time we went out for ice cream or something like that when she's 25, but it does communicate something to someone's heart that they're cared for and they're valuable. And they're someone that is worth being treated well and treated right. And regardless of, you know, whether you're quote unquote making memories or get a bunch of pictures or can do an Instagram post about it, just having that connection and letting somebody know that they're valued and they're loved and uh, someone cares enough about them to treat them well is a beautiful thing to do. Um, and uh, in case I haven't convinced you yet, you also feel great doing it. So if you're just like a really selfish narcissist, you should also do it because it just feels good to do it. So I have two, two things that happened to me when my daughter was in preschool, either three or four, they had a dad day at school. Mm -hmm. So I went and there was one girl whose father wasn't there. And she was inconsolable. Yeah. Everyone else's dad was there. And I remember the teacher walking her around, having her on her shoulder, trying to calm her down. And I just said at that moment, I said, I will never miss hmm. a dad-daughter event. My daughter will never feel like that. Brutal. The second was when my daughter was seven or eight, we were uh, going to see a ballet. We're at the uh, will call line to get tickets. There was two couples in front and behind us. And I said to my daughter, I said, honey, what was, what's your favorite dad, daddy, daughter date? And she looked at me without missing a beat. And she said, dad, they're all my favorite. Jeez. And I just, <laughs> oh gosh. but the best was the two couples around us in front and back, the girls turned around and they both said, you got that right, honey. <laughs> <laughs> it's universal. It's universal. So That's if you have the time. chance to do a daddy, daughter date, a daddy, daughter dance, a daddy, daughter class, just a daddy daughter do it they'll remember it and you'll love it awesome well, thanks for sharing gents, we're uh, at the end of this gallo cast i can't believe they just get better and better <laughs> so uh i'm gonna start sending you your questions you know what's my favorite episode you, Tom? you know what's your favorite episode yeah all of them <laughs> i'm gonna quit sending you the topics so uh <laughs> you just get better and better the later i send you the topics <laughs> maybe that's what it is there's a, there's a correlation there but well, it's right. been great, Tom. Thanks for having us on. It's always great to chop it up with you. And thank you to our loyal fans, listeners, and followers for joining us today on the GalloCast. It's always great to hang out with you guys. We'll see you next time. See you next time. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the GalloCast. I hope you'll join Nick and I in January where we get back together for another edition been a ton of fun bringing this podcast series to you it's uh really more than uh, fun than a barrel of monkeys recording it with these guys they're so great together and i hope you get a sense of uh, what they're like from this podcast if you'd like to see the video version of this check out my youtube channel the compliance podcast network under the podcast gallo cast on youtube i hope you will have a very safe and joyous holiday season and new year we will look forward to visiting you with you in 2023 if you haven't done so i would appreciate it if you could 
rate and review this podcast on uh, iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings and get out the word about the uh, GalloCast beyond the compliance community. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you in 2023.